HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Justin Cherno. We'll talk to Justin about punk and noise rock, natural wine, and of course the Four Horsemen. We'll taste a wine for our natural for our weekly wine sip that Justin forgot to tell me, so he's going to pull that out towards the end of the show. I'm your host Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. From Youngstown, Ohio to Brooklyn with a stop in D.C., Justin Cherno was on the music scene in D.C. in the early 90s with his band Pitch Blend, later Touring Machine, and other bands. He eventually settled in Brooklyn and was at the forefront of natural wine, working at retailer Uva. Uva, Uva, you'll tell me in a second. And natty wine distributor Zevro Vine. Selections. Justin is now a partner and wine director at the Four Horsemen in Williamsburg with his partners, LCD Sound System frontman James Murphy, Christina Topso, Randy Moon, along with his Michelin-starred chef, Nick Curatola. So the question is, what is a punk rocker by way of Ohio and D.C. doing at one of the most respected restaurants and natural wine bars in the country? We're going to find that out, all right? All right, welcome back to the Grape Nation, Justin. We were talking offline that you were on the show. I think it was like five, was six, five, six years ago. I think. Yeah, I and you were one of our yeah. early, you know, Grape Nation guests, and you were just getting this thing going. Yeah. And one of the common things is it was the first raw wine, and you know that was all going on. So it's nice to have you back. Um, I think you and I spent some time this past summer yeah, with Patrick, yeah, right, yeah. which was very cool. Zev was there, too. Yeah, it was fun. Which was kind of nice. Um, we are taping the show at the Four Horsemen in Williamsburg, um, and I'm talking to Justin in person, and we're in the back room. What do we call this again? This is Night Moves. This is our, uh, this this is is night our nightclub bar um, 
wine and cocktails, just hanging. So I'm place. staring at vintage Macintosh. I'm staring at custom speakers everywhere, and I'm staring at a very cool room and a turntable across the way. Um, so let's get started. All right. I don't want to spend too much time on your past because we may have covered that. Um, but I'm just curious about a, a few like click points. When did you leave Ohio? Why did you wind up in D.C.? And tell me, just weave in how the music thing became. Like, was your dad a pianist? And he said, you got to take – tell me that story. I Okay, so we'll, I'll go through each of those points, I guess. So I moved from uh, Ohio to D.C. in 1989. Uh, like most 19-year-olds, I moved there for, like, a relationship. I was dating somebody. I was dating this girl. She saw – I think. Her Wait, so it wasn't a family move? Oh, absolutely not. This was no, you. No, no, That's no, 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 pretty no, no, young. No, no. Yeah, yeah, I was young. I know it didn't seem young, and it doesn't now. Then. But it's not traditional. Yeah, but it's yeah. I was a nineteen-year-old living with his girlfriend in yeah. Washington D.C. She moved. She had a. She ended up getting a government job out of college. Uh, so Alas, D.C. Yeah, Alas, D.C. Okay. Uh, and so I ended up moving. Um, so I sort of went to visit, and I got there, and I thought to myself, "Wow, this is in Ohio," and. <laughs> I was ready. I was pretty much ready to to get out, and I had been playing in you know small local bands and having fun, and you know had a community. It was, it was an interesting place in the nine or eighties. There was a lot of music in Northeast Ohio and, and Western Pennsylvania, so I spent a lot of time in Cleveland and Pittsburgh, and I had a lot of friends from those places. And I thought best case scenario for my life, if everything went really well, maybe one day I'd live in Pittsburgh. You know, <laughs> maybe. That and uh, that goal. was like, that was, you know, that was the big city to me. That you was know? lofty then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, I ended up moving to DC and I was very lucky to, uh, almost in, it's right after moving there very quickly. Um, I got a job at a record store, like with no experience. I'd never even had a job and, uh, got hired right away and they needed somebody. I think somebody quit or something like that. And, or, you know. And I started working. It was books upstairs, records downstairs. It was a really fun place, and I met a lot of people. But because you were a musician, was it a cool thing to be at a record store? That was exactly just, what I wanted to do. Because it wasn't also, just a job. It no, was I a also, cool no, job. because also that's where the people that I right. wanted to know worked. So I made a lot of friends there and started playing music there. And so then after a few years there, it was time to go. I believe D.C. gets pretty small, especially then. It was a much different city then. And uh, I, I really wanted to live in New York. And but so, were you uh, doing a band in D? Was Pitch Blend yeah, DC? Yeah, Pitch, Pitch Blend was a Washington DC band. But don't so. gloss over that. I mean, I'm that sorry. Was yeah, a yeah. Fairly... That was a small band. It was like a but little I mean, band. But you got some critical yeah, acclaim yeah. and you played. Yeah. Well, there was there were. It's like just like we're going to talk about with wine. There was less stuff in the market, so it was easier to get more attention then. Okay, you know, and Still so low. so yeah, so so we did okay. We toured, did things like that, and put out records, and it was it was fun. And then describe I think, the I think, music. I mean, it was angular. Semi-confrontational, art rocky, post-sonic youthy kind of stuff, but that was like the music is indie rock. It was the kind of music we loved, and we had a nice contemporary base of other friends and bands, and we got to spend a lot of time, make a lot of make a lot of like-minded friends, and that also made moving somewhere like this a little easier because we had we already because of traveling, we already knew some people up here. So when I moved up here, the um, one of my closest friends who played bass in the band, he also moved up here around the same time. With his girlfriend. And so we've maintained a lot of those friendships, even from the 90s, still really close. So when you moved here, do you move here with the idea that 
you'll pursue and continue the music thing, or you just came here and then you'd see what would happen? No, I definitely, I, mean, I definitely, I mean, you know, music I was 24. Focus. I was 24 and had already been in that band for four or five years and we had all done our thing and, you know, it was time. Everybody was ready to sort of like, you know, you kind of run your course. You make four records in five right. years and stuff. Everybody still wanted to play music, but I wanted to, you know, move here and you see grew. Have other, other opportunities. We all grew. And so I was interested in playing with other people and things like that. So I came here and it took time, but then I ended up starting that band Turing Machine with the bass player from Pitch Blend and our friend. So Turing drums. Machine, yeah, a yeah. reference to Alan Turing. Oh, to Alan Turing, yeah. Kind of yeah. heady. It's like an instrumental, like right. techni technical band. And and then um and then we did a small amount of touring, put out a couple of records, and you know, New York always gets I think, you know, New York got more in the way of of that, I mean, we did pretty well, and we had a blast. So I was like, going to ask, did you make a living from the band, or you needed I've never a made day a job? I've never okay. made a living from any band I've ever been in, unless you know, by you know, no, never made a living from any okay. band I've ever been in. It's that just not. It's just not yeah, 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 not at all. But I was willing to, I was willing to have the jobs that I needed to have in order to make that living, and it was fun. You know, were those? Would you say Pitch Blend and Touring Machine were the two most prominent? Yeah, for as sure. As far as because yeah. you you did a few other yeah, things. yeah I did other that, stuff and played in other bands and things like that. But it it's funny because you know I I was in bands from say sixteen to thirty six, and I've done wine from thirty two to fifty one. So it's I've actually done wine as almost as long. That's right, and much more committedly and much more successfully than I ever did music. Well, I wanna I wanna yeah. talk about that transition. Yeah. Um, but. When did you realize the music thing had to become like a full-time real thing, like a job or something? Well, I mean, yeah, the whole time you hope it becomes your job. You never don't you hope always and have pray that, that it's right. the only thing. You know, you're 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 in the arts trying to just have one job and have one thing to do, and that's right. wake up and play your guitar every day and travel around the world. And that's, you know... And just even getting to do it a little bit, I did a, more than a lot of people. Yeah, no, to do I it. mean, and so, but, but you know, I was being, being surrounded by people, like having seen bands with like actual real success and seeing people in music really go into points in their life where like this is my full time job. But all, there's something I was talking about with my wife about this a while ago. It's funny. Most of the people I know that became pretty successful in music weren't really capable to think of anything besides maybe a, like the first half of tomorrow, but they couldn't really see into the future. So I know a lot of people that put all their chips on my band and did pretty well and put out some records and even sold 20, 30, 40, 50,000 records. Wow. Then they hit 35. Right. Nobody, you know what I mean? And then they were like, uh -oh. <laughs> like, you know, the, the New York I moved to in 1994, you could work at the strand and pay your rent and live alone. Right, different. You times. could you could work at Kim's on St. Mark's and have a roommate and live in a live one block from the train. You could go out to Dojo to dinner and like go to you know get falafels and all that. Those that 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 world of like and you didn't secretly find out every one of these people had rich parents. These were like working class people that right. moved here that wanted to make stuff. They made and, their like, own ends. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't I from from again, I'm disconnected from a lot of that, but I don't know if a lot of that exists anymore. I don't think so. And uh and it was a it was a different thing, you know. I don't think so. I think, you know, that's a time I don't want to say bygone era, but that's the way it was then and it's a lot different now. Yeah, period. It is. All right, so tell me cuz we alluded to it before. You just said that half your life's been music, half has been wine. Mm -hmm. The current half has been wine. 
I can't figure out that transition when you realized wine was something that, for lack of better words, fell for and started moving towards it and got seriously. When was that? Who was it? I mean, it was probably a, like when I started working at Uva in the 2000s. But but back, mm-hmm. yeah. was that because that was a job or was the mindset, hey, I, let I, me, this I, is a cool place, I think. Let, you I, know. I, I, I think. I think one thing is, one thing you have to understand is like, you don't have to just like one thing, right? So right. I didn't just, it wasn't like, I either liked music or I was really into knitting. Like I like I I could be a musician and love wine and love restaurants and love reading, you know, literature and things like that. But why wine and not knitting? Exactly because well, you got to get drunk. Okay. One, I love I loved loved being around the table, love late nights, love eccentrics. Love weirdos. So what wine does that whole community and like the through, commu- and when I, and I didn't when I started to meet the community of people that were interested in the wines that I was interested in. I started to see similarities, and when I started to travel, I also met a lot of winemakers that were in bands when they were teenagers or in their twenties. There are a lot, there are a lot of natural wine people, and it's probably the same thing for conventional wine. I just don't travel to these places, so I don't know these people. But I've met tons of people that were like, oh. I, I heard your band. I was in a band like that in in you know Beerites or whatever. Like right. like there were, and it's not just like you know there were a lot of people who came up in countercultural kind of like strange little um, niche culture things, and they found their way to agriculture. I mean, there was there is a thing here that happened on the East Coast, which is you know in the last twenty years where people left the cities and moved to make goat cheese and, you know, started doing farms and and what much more thoughtful kind of farming and raising animals in a different way. And a lot of those people did come from my subculture. And so I think that, you know, the same mindset. Yeah. It's a similar mindset. I mean, I always said that about, you know, wine. I, I did this wine, I did this wine class. Uh, it was like nine years ago and like, and it was a, for a, it was for actually a music festival and it was part of the music festival. And I talked about how, one thing that really clicked for me when I was young, and I've said this before, but it was like I realized that like I couldn't figure out how to remember wines. And my friend Jay Strell, who's actually the publicist for our restaurant, but Jay's one of my a very old, dear friend. One, okay, one of my oldest friends. He we lived in a group house together in D.C. That's how I know him, and he's really the, the main, really the main person that was responsible for getting me into into wine. He hired me to he got me hired at Uva. He always had bottles around. He was really he knew how to did operate had, in this world. Did he beg the political thing then? And he was he was still I think he was still kind of around. It was like a little bit in the middle yeah. of both. Yeah. But you know, he was like he was much more comfortable in a restaurant than I was at the time. Right. And um and so the thing was that um I realized that you know I couldn't figure all this out, but I was like I could remember. We can go to a record store, and I could remember every record I looked at. I could I could hear a song and find you know know who the producer was, know when it was, what studio they did it, and what guitars they used. Like all that stuck stuff stuck in my head. And then I figured out this little this little algorithm in my head, which was that the winemaker was the band, the vintage was like when the record was released, the name of the cuvee was the song, and you know, and the distributor was a record label. That's perfect, and right, and then but it was like immediately when I realized that, then it all worked. And I've, I've t- said this before, and like that's that was a very really the cool, basis. Uh, it was the basis of that class. And I've, cool I've actually system. seen other people write about have coming into something like that in their lives, and it was just like that's how the filing cabinet in my brain works. And then I remembered everything. 
And then I was able to be that, I be, that kind of made me, that's when I became a good wine buyer. And that's when I started being at a table and remembering the wines I had rather than being like, Cote de Rhone's pretty good. I don't know who made it. You right. know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. It re- that was like a real transition for me. And being able to file that stuff in my head is something I had such a lifelong obsession with. I think it put it on level playing field, a level playing field. And I really enjoyed it the way I enjoyed music. And I really enjoyed meeting the people that sold the wine to me and distributed so it. So you were at Uva, what, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine uh, years? Oh, two, oh, two to 12, so 10 years. I mean, that's a long yeah, time. Yeah, it was a long so time. So obviously it fed your desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you said you were traveling yeah. because of Uva. Yeah. I guess people yeah. would come in. Sure. You, you meet people and you'd realize that, like, you know, the world was smaller than you thought. Because even after all the traveling I did in bands, I never went to Europe before that in bands until oh. much later. I don't think you would do a gig in, like, the Loire Valley so quickly. No, no, no. Right? No, exactly. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know. Um, so let's talk about Uva. Let's talk about Zevrovi. And you'll sure. put those two things together. Yeah. Um, when you got to Uva, did you eventually, were you eventually the wine buyer? I mean, eventually, or? yeah. At first, I was like, you know, Tuesday and Thursdays, 5 30 to 10. And I was working, I was working multiple jobs I would at that hope point. After just, 10 years, you got a promotion. Yeah, and I, got think, more actually, hours, I think I was only know? there for like two, I think I'd only been there for two years before I got made the buyer, which was pretty great. But there was a small. What, what, what was, was it? Leaning towards smaller producers, natural. I mean, was was that set in when you got there? For sure. Is that something that caught your attention? I think we talked about this too last time I was on. But like, what essentially happened was the buyer there, Shane Smith, who now has his own distribution company called Rough Mix. He was a very, very early, um, enthusiastic evangelical level buyer from Dresner, especially Jenny Francois. Big time Jenny Francois supporter, and you know wherever he could get his hands on these wines. And he really believed it. I mean, like the after party for their trade testing would be at his apartment. Like he was really – he was <laughs> customer number one yeah. for, for them. And so when he left, he recommended that I get the position. And then it was my own journey to start buying those wines. I wasn't a big fan. I thought a lot of them tasted exactly the same. There, I didn't like bread. I didn't like VA. I might not have even known what a lot of those things were then, but I knew I didn't like those tastes. And then over time, tasting with sales reps and learning over the next year being there – I started to find my own voice and it turned out that the wines that I really liked that I was being shown by sales reps happened to be lower invention, no sulfur, all, you know, like things that fell into the natural wine category at the time, even in Kermit wines, you know, things like that. Like a lot of, a lot of stuff. This, this may be a silly question, almost like clueless, but <laughs> are the wines better now than they were then? I mean, natural wine's been around yeah. a while. So, a lot of these guys have been making it, but a lot of the complaints, which weren't necessarily true, mousy and consistent, all that. I mean, are, it depends. There's still, you know, the thing is, like, if you fall in love with something that changes every year, and as much as, like, you know, you've seen vintage. Ins- yeah, 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 exactly. Vintage changes. Unless the wine's like supposed to be different every year. A Napa cap. And, and what's or- happening now, you know, with climate change and, like, really just a bunch of horrible growing seasons in a row, some wines are good. So it just it just depends. I mean, people still end up with a mousy right. cuvee. You know what I mean? It's not. That's it's why just, it's a silly question because yeah. the circumstance ha- then is sort so of the same just, now. You always have to taste. Yeah. And this is like a this is like a whole other thing. But like now that you know, when Horseman opened, we were one of a few places doing what we did. The Ten Bells had been here for a long time. People had definitely done natural Lee Campbell, Byron Bates, uh, Jorge Fifi. People had done natural wine lists. 
previously right. in the in the city, but they there was a period of time in, where they could get what they wanted and taste everything and make sure that the wines they had were of, of quality. Now there's n- every you know every new place that opens is has these wines and people ask for them, and that's a finite thing because growers don't make that much more wine. And it's now around the world people want it, you know. And so now we can't taste these wines. Right. I can't. Nobody shows up with a bottle a lot of the time to say, hey, this is the new vintage from blah, Sucks blah, blah. for you. You get an email. Because you say, knew it. You get it. Do you want your wine? And but I you say, don't know. I? You don't miss what yeah. you know. Well, if you ask to taste it, then it all sells. And right. so you missed your chance to get it. And you didn't get to taste it. So you have to you have to really roll the dice a lot of the time. So that yeah. that's now. And yeah. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then mm-hmm. we're. The consumers walking in the store when you went out, were they receptive to these wines? Did they you were. Need to, I, I mean, I think people would go to an uva as they would now and say, hey, this is what I that, like. Tell me what I should drink. The amount of wine that came back. I remember, a lot of wine came so back. So the recommendation a lot of wine was would come up, back. but well, the taste sent it back. People would come back and wow. they'd be like, that wine you wanted me to drink is fizzy. The thing you get, I don't understand what this taste is. Wow. Well, you know, and like, we didn't know what the taste was either. We just thought it was good. You know, um, the amount of Jura wine that was returned specifically. More than any other. More than any other wine. But, I, you know, people used to bring back Pacolet. People used to bring back uh, Medio Pepe. People, like, these are top quality growers, you know, producers. They were confused by by a lot of the stuff. And we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. Because we had never had... Jeffrey Chamberton from somebody else. We had never had Sancerre from somebody besides Sebastian Ruffo. Like we thought that these were wines that we loved and somebody who knew just a little more than us would be like, I got news for you. This is not what this is supposed to taste like. Or you know what I mean? Really? Oh, sometimes, okay. So bear it But it was a long time ago. It's like, it's. That's great. I actually like a world more where people aren't afraid to tell you that they hate something rather than being afraid to tell you that, that, if they're being afraid that if they tell you they don't like it, you don't think they're cool or you don't I think agree they're with smart. You. I used, we used to call this the free jazz quandary in, when I was in music. The idea that like if you didn't like something like really avant-garde. Like if Don Cherry's blowing away well, if, if, everybody's if like, that, that's some, cool. some of the, If you were like, you know, I just really don't like this, they'd be like, oh, don't worry. One day you'll be smart and you'll like this. You know what <laughs> oh, I mean? Yeah. And like – so, and I, that's like – I prefer people being like, I actually think this is garbage and I don't want to, you know, as much as I – that's so, an interesting yeah. point. Back then, I mean, was most of the wine from France? Was it mostly Jura? I would say, I would say, Italy back then, I would say most of the growers that 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 were taking the chance in these wines, into. like like LD, like Dresner at the time, and and Jenny and and Kermit, they were mostly focused in France, right? And that seemed to be where the heartbeat of the wines were at the time. And you spent time in France, Paris, yeah, wine yeah all bars, that stuff. Yeah, I did all. I did the usual thing. Yeah, and you know, getting those just wines in, out there. Maybe within the last six or seven years, have you started to see wine in even in Paris? That's not from Paris, or not 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 from France. I mean, right. you used to go out and you'd be like, maybe you'd see an Italian wine, but it was always an orange one. Like if they had one, it'd be like, ah, oh, skin macerated wine from Princich or somebody like that. You know, is orange wine still a thing? It's like you, it's, you, it's, you it's, know, it's, you're running this place uh, to people come dude, in so narrow side and go. I mean, I, I want orange. I'm wine. sure you I hear. Need- I'm sure you hear this and you see this, but for me. It is its own. When I say it's, it's still own, a yeah, thing, it's its we own, knew what, it's what its it own, was, what it is, own, what it It's will its be. own beverage category, and the only thing I could re- relate it to is what it was like to sell rosé in the in the mid two thousands. People would come in, you know, between we, we used to have a joke between Memorial Day and Labor Day, we had a crew of of customers that would come into the wine store, 
and they you couldn't get them. We had a rosé table of like thirty rosés. They never looked past that table, and the minute Labor Day hit, you didn't see them again till Memorial Day. Now you have a three hundred sixty-five day a year orange wine customer, but you do see guests sit down and somebody gets a glass of something that's cloudy and you know dark amber, and they're like, "That's what I want," and that's what they get. And you know, thankfully, there are a bunch of great. There is a you know, amazing tradition of these wines, and there are great skin contact wines. So, and there's a lot available. While I have you, yeah, I didn't mean to do a show on orange yeah, wine. Yeah, that's good. But recommend one or two producers that are good. You would serve somewhat accessible. I mean, Princhit for sure. Spell uh, P R I N C I C. Okay, Daria. I mean, phenomenal wines. Okay, like, you know, part of that sort of disciples of Grovnery kind right, of world. Right, right. You know, like, but where there's a tradition of that kind of winemaking, I, I think those those wines are, are really give me one more really fantastic for something else. Um, uh, I would say, like, you know, I really love the wines from uh, Slobodne. Um, those those are those is that are, the producer yeah, Slobodne? Yeah, they're they're like, I like Central Central Europe Europe as a whole. Yeah. You're really seeing some really beautiful wines from from that part of the world, and people that where there is a tradition of skin contact and of low sulfur and and things like that. You know, because just for the sake of you know the expense, people did a lot of low intervention wines because you you just didn't buy the other chemicals and products that you needed. Right, right, right. Um, but Central Europe as a whole, I've, I've been really lucky to go for the last few years to Austria and then some surrounding regions with groups of other colleagues from around the world. Yeah, on a, on a trip around this wine fair called Character. That's in Vienna, which is a really incredible wine fair. And it's really about putting these, you know, this sort of group of people together to be group of buyers and even, you know, journalists and people. And they take us to different growers and we learn a ton. I was just talking. Do you know Marco Kovac? That's who puts on the fair. That's what I'm saying. I was talking to him and. um, Yeah, Marco's a dear friend of mine. Yeah. I really, I really. It's funny. And Jay actually (laughs) hooked me up with him. We're trying to do something. So there's very, you know, interesting. But I mean, I feel like, you know, that that part of the world as a whole, like, you can't really go wrong. Yeah. I I agree. And I think you should be more open it's not one or two producers yeah. i don't i really yeah you know. i think you should yeah i think it's more about like also just everything's so culty now like just like get into a region like get go go where you can get the wine all right so good lead into what i was yeah. going to ask you at some point um when you say culty so is that the effects of social media on yes. this i mean undeniably, undeniably one million percent it's undeniably. like why would this be culty if nobody knew about it they're seeing pictures of the orange in the glass they're they're at a hip bar people do no i mean you know people just hold up their phone and say do you have this is that is that negative positive neutral i, I mean i don't know i just the I, the problem becomes for me the problem is becomes when you it's so influencer based that everybody wants the same 30 wines. And then those wines become very hard to get. And now they're, I never in my life thought I would see Jura wines for over $1,000 a bottle retail and restaurant list. And now I see them. What's a good example of that? I mean, I should know, um, but it's Kanjiro like, Kagami, Domaine de Miroir, in really? uh, Rotelier. Well, that's kind of rare stuff anyway. But I mean, still, they're rare, but, but, but still, they're, still a thousand bucks. They're still $40 wholesale from Zev. <laughs> that's crazy. And they're still, that means that they're 30 bu- 20, 30 bucks out of the seller. And they're twelve hundred bucks, you know, and like, and like he's the Kanjira's not getting rich off it. Zeb's not no. getting rich off it. And you know, and same like, thing with Burgundy. I mean, oh, yeah, but that's I mean, exactly. That's like that's yeah, separate years show. of our we do a year yeah. long. But yeah, but it's interesting to watch it happen to these wines because 
they've been accepted by the same guy that four years ago was using his hedge fund money to buy Cristal, Krug, DRC, you know. So I was going to ask yeah. you, it, it, the, the influencer is not even an influencer. It's just a guy. He is an influencer, but he got a lot of followers. It's a hedge fund guy. I assume so. I mean, it's some, I mean, I'm sure there's some psalms yeah. sure, and yeah, other people yeah, experts, but it's, like, but it's, yeah. it's democratic. A lot, Anyone a lot of can it, do a lot it, right? Of it is, from the collector end of it, it is a lot of people posting photos of their bottles with corks still in them. Right. It's not like I drank this. It's like, look what I have access to. And I totally get it. Well, but it's like, it's like I didn't want it. I'm not interested in car collecting either. It's you know what I mean? It's not a drinker mentality. It's a collector mentality. It's a, yeah, it's exactly. A, it's a show. Yeah. And even when I was like a, a hardcore record collector, I still wanted you to come over to my house and listen to these songs. Right. You know, and I still wanted to just yeah. talk to you for hours you about like this album. Yeah. I used to say all the time, it's like, it's like being obsessed with Stevie Wonder, but not being able to bef- hear any of his music. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I, and I get it. Again, I get it. Like, we all have bucket list things, things we want to check off and things that we want to have, you know, be able to drink. And, and I'm very lucky to have come from an era of, of this stuff where I, had, I was able to drink all that stuff. I've had all kinds of crazy things that people have put in, in, in front of me, which I'm very fortunate, and distributors that want to sell them to me. But I don't feel comfortable putting those wines on the list for twelve hundred dollars, and no. I don't feel. But it's not I, you. It's if not I the put place. it on for two hundred dollars, you know what happens? That hedge fund guy comes in three nights in a row. I know wrong people. Or they or they send their it. friends in, and then they clean it. They clean you out. It's in like, and you don't want to have a culture in a restaurant of no. You don't want to have a thing where you just so so this person has it on their table, and someone else says, "Can I have that?" And you're like, "Oh no, you don't want to do that." Well, we'll talk about that yeah. when we talk about the restaurant yeah, yeah, yeah. wine list. Yeah, it's just, you're it's very, just bad hospitality. You're very, right. You're very keen to that, you yeah. know, secret wine list yeah, and yeah. all that BS. Um, it's funny. You said you, you know, you were lucky through the years to taste a lot of stuff that now, you know, maybe an Instagram post or whatever. Is there anything now? I mean, you still love and learn new things. I mean, that, totally. I mean, what's any anything notable right now whether it's region maker type of wine varietal there seems to be a really i mean there seems to be outside of just talking about winemakers really there seems to be a lot going on in alsace again with really young people which i think is interesting i was talking to steve steven bitterhoff from von boden the other day I know, he's at been length, on the show. um and I, i'm really inspired by what he's doing and i'm really trying to Learn more and get more in, into to those those places because they well, they're him just and they're, Robert and source yeah material sure sure and I, I think I think what they're doing I think what they're doing is yeah. really interesting kind of organic yeah they're they're finding cool stuff but um but the thing the thing is like Rob or I'm sorry Stephen was telling me that you know at this point vines of the Mosul are practically free you can go there and start and I think he thinks that there's going to be a, a lot more young energy in places like that because you can get started there really really inexpensively cuz people are just dying out and they haven't wanted to work there it's hard it's hard to work and there the and the land doesn't yeah you know get the type of I don't know. I wow. mean, that's a really good question. I've, I still haven't I guess visited. Not. So, I mean, if so somebody I dies in Napa, it's it used like to be, a half a million well, an yeah, acre. And it, used to be, it used to be that way in Languedoc, and I'm sure it still is, but people were finding 100-year-old ungrafted vines that have been abandoned for 20 years, and you can buy a hectare for 3000 bucks. You know what I mean? Like, And so and so I, I think that, that that's an interesting thing. One of the things they've been highlighting thing. is they're starting to show younger guys making yeah, wine. So that's, or, I think that's neat. Or a younger guy with his dad, you know, yeah. new property or something. So yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things going on in those places and a ton of wines I've never seen before. And that's always fun. Is and, and tasting first vintage, second vintage, third vintage wines, that's always really neat. But 
you brought up uh, Stephen. That's that's where the distributors do the work and expose mm-hmm. you. I For mean, sure. they still come in with stuff you've never heard yeah, of or all the tasted. Time. It's great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's that's the fun part of the. That's really the thing that keeps you in it too. Like you 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 get frustrated because you you spend like twenty minutes on Instagram and it's just all. It's, and then you get out of it and and like you know you're or someone a wine rep comes in with just a great bag of stuff and you're like okay this is. This is cool. Like, we don't have to worry about that. I like to hear that. Um, When we talk about natural wine, and I put it in quotes because I don't love the idea, but that type of wine is something you've been involved with and attracted to. I mean, what what's the attraction? Is it the story? Small producers? Is, is it taste? I, I don't the aesthetics. But and, is the yeah. taste because they're not screwing around with the land? I never made wine. You know what I mean? So, so for me, so I, I see a parallel through all these things, and I feel like these are the so wines that I believe in. So you don't sift through all of that. Now, regenerative mm-hmm. farming is you know a bigger thing than biodynamic—not bigger thing, but I'm another a, thing besides biodynamics. There's permaculture. There's biodiversity. I, I'll, I'll be honest. You don't get. Yeah. You don't buy yeah. wines or get caught up. I'll, I'll be really. I'll be completely honest. Whatever. I'm just not an academic about it. I'm just not an MW kind of person. That's. I'm not a class person. I'm an experiential at the table. I'm a drinker. I like wine. I like traveling. I like meeting people that make them. I, I'm I've been a pretty decent uh, at like you know tasting things that I think taste good and, and getting people excited about them. But the 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 back end story of it isn't my isn't my story for wine. And I'm really happy that people teach me those things. But that's not really where where I'm coming from. I think what you described is really the best way to do it versus studying books for six depends i mean there are people i know that like you know there are people who that comes very second nature to and their their way of enjoying something is knowing everything about it and i'm not i'm not um i just don't need to be there it's just not for me and it's not because i'm lazy either it's just it's just that that's not like i don't need to know the science behind it you know, I mean, I do see that that like things that I really love and things that I'm interested in selling happen to be part of this culture, and and happen to be made this way from what I've learned and been told. But these are the wines I like, and and those are the wines I'm shown, and that's that's the stuff I go to. You know, and and I have found that like when I drink wines that aren't that way, I just don't really enjoy them, and it's ob- it's obvious. It's not even a like, oh, I really like that till I found out that they spray or whatever. Right. It's just like right. the spraying You're, is just part of an entire equation. It starts there and it goes farther. Is, yeah, it's know, just not, it's not for me. Yeah. yeah. But I also know people that, that like now, mousy wine. You know, I know, I like, I know people who can't taste VA. Like I'm not that person either. Like I don't like those wines either. I'm, I make no excuse for that stuff. And, and I don't, I can't taste through those issues. I can't be like, well, this really VA'd wine is still cool because the guy who makes it, that's, this is their story. Right. I'd be like, oh, it just didn't work out this year. Maybe next year will be better. I think that's a real and fair way to look at it. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're talking to Justin Cherno. Justin is um, the wine guy and partner at the Four Horsemen, um, a restaurant and wine bar um, in Brooklyn. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about, you know, Four Horsemen and his wine list and some of the other things. So you're listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. 
Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Justin Cherno. Justin from the Four Horsemen in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, Justin, you've been here, what, seven, eight years? June will be seven years. Which is... I mean, admirable and not an easy thing, right? I, I don't, I, it feels like it went from like three to seven. I can't figure it out. I know. It's like having kids. And, you know, I don't, every show I've done for the past few years has, you know, been a pandemic thing. But the good news is that we're here, you're here, and we look forward. Um, so there should be a cool story here. And the question is, how did the four horsemen come about? You know, sure. I know we'll get to James Murphy in a minute, mm-hmm. but I know that he either produced or you knew him musically years before. Yeah, he did. So he, he, give he, me this he, he story. Was re- he was referred uh, when I was in the band Turing Machine. We had record, self-recorded an album in our rehearsal space on an eight-track, and we needed someone to produce and mix it. And he was referred to us by friends, and um, I went to his studio with the CD of, you know, burn C- back when you burn CDs, that's right. a comp- compact disc for all burn the young CDs. listeners. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I brought it to him and we started talking in the studio in the afternoon and, um, we ended up listening to musical, not the music I brought, but ended up listening to records all day and spent some time together and laughed and like, well, like, Oh wow. We like a lot of same stuff. And he was like, have you heard this? Have you heard this? Have you heard this? And then we started emailing each other back and forth and, it was a couple of weeks and he's like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll mix the record, come in on this day. And we came in and him and his, he and his studio partner loaded the CD that I gave him into the CD player. And it was the first time they ever heard it because he was like, well, you, you liked cool music. I figured how bad could your band be? And then we became really good friends from there on. And wow. I, I really, I thought that was pretty funny. And what like, year do you remember? 90, 98. 98, wow. 98, yeah. And then so over time, as he saw... And once yeah, once he got in his thirties, the band he started the band. They started to become very successful and travel a lot. And then we would, I would try. I was traveling for wine, so we'd sometimes end up in some similar cities together in France or something like that. And we'd go eat, and we'd hang out. And then we he started going other places and being like, oh, this place I went to in Japan reminds me of this place that you took me to there. Or this we started talking about that. That he met and married his now wife Christina, who was um, from Denmark, but I th- at the time she lived in London. And then Randy, our other partner, who they met when they were in Los Angeles, also liked all these places, and we all sort of started becoming dinner friends, uh, you know, wine friends. And uh, we're like, were you, know, you I, the most evolved wine guy for wine? Yeah, uh, yeah, because because it was my job. But everybody else, you know, right. no, because but, of that. but we all yeah. liked to. to really spend time together and, and everybody had their own interests and we all showed and shared things to each other that none of us none of us had seen before um we uh were like man i wish we had a place like all these other places that we loved and the great thing is none of us had a, all, all shared the same favorite place we all had different places that we loved and different aspects of that and uh i really wish we had something like this here and that's sort of when 
you know, we decided that wouldn't it be great if we did something like this in New York? And from that thought to reality, was that quick or it was it about took, two years? I think it was. And is it two years of regular discussion or on and off? And no, I mean, I still, you know, James was busy in his band. Uh, Christina and Randy were busy in their careers. And I worked with Zev Rovine at the time, so I was doing that. And right, I had we just, didn't talk and about I, that. And I just had a kid. So we all had things going on, but we all you know, would come together to work on this as well. Um, and so it was, a, you know, it was just a lot of meetings, emails, you know, that kind of stuff. And everybody kind of had their own responsibilities, and we, we sort of did it as a team. Isn't one of the tougher things like a location – it is. Like at, at, I'm sure you weren't looking at locations. This was the only two lo- days this was after actually that. was the only location. Um James happens to live next door. Um and this was a vegan uh fast food takeout <laughs> place called Food Swings. And then the space we're sitting in now that is night moves was a bar called Larry Lawrence that had been here for some some time. And Food Swings lease was over. And uh James had become friendly with the landlord of this building who lived upstairs. And uh they had said, you know. Well, someday when Food Swings is done, you know, we'd love to maybe open a place in there in five or six years. And the landlord said, well, their lease is done. Wow. And that was it. It was just, it was time. And we signed the lease and we just went for it. Right away. I yeah, mean, pretty much. He yeah. said that you yeah, had yeah, to Yeah, yeah, pretty right much. In. That was it. it was Where like, were you living then? I still, I, I live in Greenpoint. So it was so Greenpoint yeah, still in the same place, as yeah. it is now. Um, Which is also a much different neighborhood seven years later than it was 21 years ago when I moved there. My, so. my kid lived there. Maybe eight, ten years ago. I mean, I should have bought everything in sight. <laughs> there were seven restaurants. There's yeah, like yeah. seventy now. Yeah, it's, it's true. ridiculous. It's crazy. You know, it's like I'm sure Williamsburg. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I mean, Williamsburg yeah. was like that. All right, so you sign a lease, and now what? It's like I signed a lease. Are we doing what we said, or what are we doing? Yeah, I mean, I mean you how know, do you pull well, this? We, What's we, the mission? What's the vision? The vision was a small place that people could come to and drink the wines that we love that served, you know, fresh, bright, like kind of like just the kind of food, the kind of food that we thought worked with the wine that we liked, but with like a real team in the kitchen that really believed in what they wanted to do and really felt like they had some freedom because, and then ended to hire a front of house person manager who knew how to run a restaurant because none of us had even worked in a restaurant. Right. So the flow is right. Pardon me? So the flow, you know, so the front of the rooms were. Yeah. So, so because that, that has to be, Spot on. So we, I don't know if we talked off here or on here, but you didn't want to open a wine restaurant. You didn't want to, you didn't want, you didn't want to open a wine bar. You didn't want to open a restaurant. You wanted to do both. Well, that's because you the places wanted that we, the places wine. that we loved, the places that we loved often were also wine stores and in, in, you know, within the restaurant, but the places that we really liked the, you know, and I, I don't know if we discussed this or not, but we made this huge mistake when we opened. I don't, I'm actually, when we spoke years ago, I might not have known it was mistake yet, <laughs> but, but we had referred to our place as a wine bar. And Maybe. in New York, people think that's Barvaloce. You know, you get, you get, um, some burrata and you get some prosciutto and then you sit at the bar. And we literally, well, for the first year we were open, we had people making, they, we were the first place in Williamsburg to take reservations. And people were pissed about it. And they thought we were really elitist. And even wine people I knew were like, oh, I guess that means I can never go there because I can't spontaneously go there. Right. You know? That's interesting. And it was was a real backlash against it. People saw it as pretty elitist and and almost like like we were opening a velvet rope restaurant where like we were going to decide that wasn't the case at all. We just don't have a lot of seats and we want to know how to buy food. And because – 
James and Christina and I, and now Randy as well, we are we're parents. We needed to know if we wanted to go somewhere that we loved that we can go there. We had grown up going to Diner and Marlowe and Sons and places that had taken great care of us. But if you showed up there at 7.30 on a Saturday night and say you had a babysitter, you might not sit till 9 and then you're done. You have to go home. So we wanted to make a place that people knew that what part of their night it was as well. That was why we took reservations. And that blew over. I mean, everybody- Yeah, it blew over. But because we said we were a wine bar and we meant like Vervalet or La Dauphine or a hero store in, in Japan or somewhere, these places that we used to love is still love very Those much. Those were inspirations. Yeah. But like we thought that that meant people understood that they were there for dinner and they were going to drink wine and they would make a reservation and eat soprasada. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so so we had to really – we spent a long time, a couple of years in the press explaining to people that the wine bar, term wine bar doesn't apply to us. We just happen to have a bar right. where you can drink wine. And now that we're so booked, it kind of sucks, but like we're so booked that we don't really have that business anymore where people can just roll in and have a glass at the bar. Because no. people and book to eat at the bar. This is a neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. You can't have everything. Yeah, I know it's true. I remember lucky, but let's um, let's talk yeah. about the food first, sure. and then we'll um, morph yeah. into the wine. Um, I wouldn't say you got lucky, but I'd say that you got the right guy. I mean, your chef Nick Curatola, Curtola, Curtola, mm-hmm. um, has been with you how long? Since I mean, since actually for a year before we opened. Okay, maybe even a little so longer he's than that. Part yeah. of the family. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple things. Correct me if I'm wrong. He received a Michelin star. That's correct. Current. Yeah, we're on. We're on our second year. We're okay. You know, hopefully, we go for third. And we'll see. Um, I don't think it's a secret. He's writing or a cookbook's coming out. Yep, we're working on a four horseman cookbook. That is uh, Nick's. Um, I'm doing the wine content, and Nick is obviously doing all the food content. There'll be some stuff about the restaurant, things like that. Oh, nice. So but um, be a but wine. you know, we're trying to. You know, we're in the. We're putting it all together. So it's a. It is I, a Nick Curtola Four Horsemen cookbook. Okay. And, and so me, you and highlight Nick, but the Four Horsemen's prominent. That's nice. There's a lot of food in it, and it's not – it's important that Nick and I spoke a lot about this, that we want the wine content and the food content to be something people can go back to. And it's not just pictures of like us in the restaurant. It is a usable book. So a couple of questions, maybe more. Um, has Nick's – cooking evolved into something a little different than what it was when you do the wine list is there thought of what he's cooking or vice versa he cooks what you're thinking or to me it would probably be collaborative that thing that's i don't know the thing is we live in this contemporary this moment this like contemporary small plates food kind of moment or whatever it is where i know that his like we've worked together long enough now i know like essentially what's coming out of the kitchen it's interesting because it's important to us that like we're like in – I think Nick says it. We're an international local restaurant. So we have Japanese flavors on the menu with European flavors on the menu with, you know, Eastern flavor. You know, like really all kinds of stuff together in your same meal and like classical American flavors. But the acidity is high. The products are good. The, the, the level of care and, you know, and work that goes into each dish is incredibly high. And the wine – because I like, you know, wine with good acidity and freshness. It always, it just, it lands next to the food. So you pointed something out. The food has good acidity. A lot of people, when they talk about food. Yeah. So what does that mean? Like citrus and citrus, ingredients. vinegars. That point, right. Bright, bright vinegar. Because right. It, they, it seems to me like and that, that, that what they want, what they have to hit the table, they really want to pop. You know? So um, 
foods like that are complemented by high acidic foods. They don't fight. It or- depends. It, it totally, you know, it depends. And thankfully, like we do have a team that understands how to put that stuff on the table. But like you might have multiple moments through your meal where like you have to think about it, you know. But that's cool too. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's you cool. know, it's quite a cha- it's good. It's challenging yeah. to your palate. And Absolutely. All of that stuff. I mean, yeah, you know, there's always like asparagus and like you know cardoons and things like that that <laughs> right. are always a challenge. Yeah. But it's I mean also <laughs> the, every, the, everywhere I go puts that every single place I know this wine focus still puts that stuff on the table. Is you know? cardoons tougher than asparagus to pair? <laughs> I don't know. It could be. You know, it's like I just always put that in artichoke land. You know what <laughs> I mean? So cardoons asparagus and artichokes all right so let's talk about the wine list Uh, one of the interesting things is a lot of restaurants post their wine list i kind of know why you don't well because it changes it changes but also we just we're getting back into posting it now we're actually gonna start doing that again funny you say that but i don't tend to post a lot of pictures of wine no, you don't. I mean, I do like on my private I'm socials and stuff like that. I'm talking about the website and just yeah, saying, yeah. what's this guy yeah. got on his list? I don't know. I mean, it's like we all the, – the thing is in New York, for the most part, we all are offered the same wines. You have the same sales rec, the same companies. It's not like I am direct importing all this stuff and it's all mine. You know, you have your relationships and maybe you're offered a little more of this or that right. or, or things like that. You know, allotments or allocations low end are it, better yeah. or, or it's important to a, a distributor to have their wine in, on your list or whatever. And and sometimes we're really lucky to be on the positive side of that and that's great. But it is it is a lot of this stuff is in the, the challenge of not just of just not being ubiquitous. You know, it's like everybody knows what wines are famous. Everybody knows these things and like – so it's not like if, I, if we post our wine list at like a bunch of restaurants are just going to buy those wines because everybody has them offered to them anyway. And it's all out there. It's all like you just get your your Jenny Francois, your Dresner book, your Grand Cru Selections book, your Kermit Lynch, all the wines there to buy. It's just do you make that decision? If for some reason we were really fortunate enough to be in a category where people wanted to look at our list and be influenced by buying those wines, it's kind of great because then it's good for the – distributor and yeah. the grower yeah a lot of wines we represent that i like to put on like like we talked about i mentioned this wine last time i think when we were on on the air domain Laon Baral. it's a wine through kermit lynch the wine was i think represented by ipo they don't have the same reach is as a lot in in this contemporary market as a lot of the younger distributors Baral is like top 10 you know real natural wines of the world right you could buy it on any great list of the world but you don't see it anywhere in New York because Why? it was with the wrong distributor and they just didn't get it into the ah. right restaurants and it wasn't a priority to them to sell it. And the market wasn't either smart enough or aware it's where a, it's a, they it's, wouldn't you know, bug it's a, guys it's, like you and say it's how Karen, this It's Carignan and Syrah from the Languedoc. It's okay. like, you know, it's like it's not necessarily on Vogue, but it's a really important wine. And when it hits the table and people have it in front of them, they're like, this is a great wine. Right. So there, it's you're not being too nerdy about it. I mean, you're right about this. You know, yeah, that it was an oversight that yeah, New York, just, and it was mechanics, the distributors. Well, they didn't I push mean, it. I, wor- I worked for you know, I worked with Zev. Yeah, sure. I worked for Zev for six years, and like, it was fascinating to watch wines that were with another book end up being like, you know, I'm not selling enough wine with them. I'd like to work with you, and then he would they would move to his book, and then the wine in a year would be allocated. But it was on closeout with the other distributor right. and vice versa. Wines that he and I believed in more than anything, really loved. You know, I, I can't even think of them, but I remember these moments. 
And then they're like, and I'm sorry, you guys aren't selling enough. I'm going to this distributor. And then they become just allocated with that distributor. It just depends the context of the wine and how people get out and sell them and it's how they believe point. in them. It happens on our list here too. There are wines that I can't believe that we were lucky enough to get. And I just didn't take the time to really talk to our team about it or it didn't land with them in a they way that they there. really believed. They sit there. You know, and it's like, and I go to Paris or somewhere, and every restaurant I go to, somebody pulls a bottle. I'm like, dude, have you had this yet? You're gonna love this. <laughs> I got a case of that. Case of it's in the basement <laughs> yeah. of New York, exactly. That's so funny. Yeah. How much does um, you know, like you said, everything's reservation now, and I'm sure you have reoccurring guests and you have neighborhood guests and all of that. How much of the list is dictated by the consumer, the customer, like if. And again, I don't want to peg it as natural wine, but if your list is composed of certain types of wines and people just want, you know, a northern Rhone or something, I mean, do you, I don't know, are you carrying that or how do you handle that? I mean, what we do is I like to, I mean, it it ebbs and flows. There are tons of times I look at the list and say, whoops, we don't have a Cote de Rhone or whoops, like I need to get more Riesling or whatever because things ebb and flow and you only have so much money to spend a month and also, when you That's really love, when there are wines that you love and you get offered them once a year and they sell out, it's it's like another. You have to find a new wine. You know what I mean? You have to find a new thing to, to put in that slot. And and I don't want to fill the list yearly with lesser things. I want to fill them with things that I believe in and that, that we love. So I'm I'm trying actually to stay a little more on that this year and maybe even think about you know we're I think we're at 840 wines on the list right now. And thirty seats. I'd like to. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to to really maybe shrink the list down and make it just a bit more producer and region focused, a little bit, but still introducing wines from new people that we love. So why is it? Why is it eight hundred forty? And why does it have to be maybe tightened up a little? Is that exuberance on your it's part? Is that also, having stuff you want? Is I that think, is that the answer to my question? This is stuff the consumer wants? Or? I don't know. It's like for, for stuff the consumer wants, I think of texture and I think of size mostly. So for consumer wants, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, there are people that come in here and they're like, do you have – you know, Julian LeBay, or, or do you have Pacolet, or, or do you have Cornelissen, or, you know, the big names, things that are identifiable, you know, Patrick Beaujou, or, or whatever, like, do you have these things? And we're going to have it. Like, I also, like, that's another reason why, I, in some ways, I don't put the list online, or wasn't putting in, because it's kind of inferred that we're going to have that stuff. Right. It's the stuff that you don't know that might be more interesting to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that's the beauty of you yeah. in this place, and yeah. people, if they're open-minded. Yeah. If they're open-minded, and, exactly. and if you need a little zuger push, maybe you'll be turned on to the next big thing. Exactly. And you, you like, know, hey, you, you should early. be drinking this because yeah. yeah. But what, um, wait, what happens? Mm-hmm. So you get a wine you love, and you know it's highly allocated and popular. I mean, for financial reasons, do you just sell it to get how, your money how, back, how, or do you try to slot it? How highly Like you allocated. said about the Wall Street guy, you yeah. don't want him to send I mean, his three honest, friends I've in got, and clear got, you out. I still have my I still have my miroir and the last couple of Overmore drops and some other things like that in storage. Really? Because I'm waiting for the. Uh, first of all, I don't think they're ready on release. Okay. So, so that's, that's the first thing. Patient. And so I don't think they're ready on release. But I also think I want to see if the market levels out on some of this stuff and maybe. And maybe we can get them back to a point where we can really sell them in a way that we're comfortable again, and the wines will be great. But if we're going to have to sell them, if we're going to have to sell them for just a, a stupid amount of money because that's their value, and we have to stay open, I want the wine to be profoundly in place and beautiful and ready, rather than just being like, 
I mean, because dude, the minute the minute that's a lot of that stuff comes out and somebody puts it on social media, people come in and they're I like, know. "I heard Ovenwa allocations dropped this week. What do you have?" But it's fair to do it either way. If you yeah. do it because you can for the money, yeah. or you want to hold it it's, and it's wait hard. to see, it's hard because you, I do think in some ways well, you have thoughtful. You have a contract You're thinking about it, but you also have a contract with the grower in your in your in emotionally and with your distributor. And in a lot of ways, it's not fair to your distributor to have to put that wine on for eight hundred dollars and nine hundred dollars. But even even Chambers is selling. Overmore for five hundred dollars now. Jesus, you know what I mean? That's like, like an ouch. I mean, to me, that's like it doesn't get to be a tighter relationship with with Dresner than them. And so I look to them as a benchmark. I mean, you know, I see that on I see those wines on Sompix or other places like that for six, seven, eight. You know, it's like, and then they're gone. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, so, there'll always be a market. Yeah, Clojard, all so, that stuff. But Rougeard, I. I, we sold three, two or three bottles of Rougeard this weekend for the first time in a long time, and I had, there were 11s and 12s of the Poyu, I think it was. Um, somebody saw it on some tape. You know, it's on the list, but somebody saw it, and they're like, oh, wow, you have that? I'll drink that. That's I didn't think about it, but that's really what I want, and it, it sold. That's crazy. Uh, I, I think I sell those for a little under market because people don't really come to Four Horsemen to drink Rougeard. So you do the right thing. I mean, it's still, like, yeah, to be honest, no, no, it's, still, no, no, it's still market rate, yeah. but it's like, but it's slightly below. It's less than what the modern sells it for or, or places like that. I would know? hope and expect that you can get yeah. a little better value here than the modern. Yeah, it just depends. For whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. But that, there's no guarantee to yeah. that. Um, I should know the answer to this, but are you doing by the glass? Oh, yeah. We do uh, two sparkling, four or five reds, two oranges, four or five whites, and then four sweet ones every every day. What, um... How much does that change frequently? I like to – I mean in order to put things that we really like by the glass, we have to order it in volume so then we get a discounted right. price. Um, but I, I tend to do each wine about three to five cases and then move on immediately. I We have enough regulars and we're lucky enough to have regulars that order by the glass and I like that to be always moving. And for our front of house team to always have something new. Also like – I mean, again, a lot of wine you don't get more than three cases of, um, you know? But and, to that yeah. point, don't you have to look at by the glass differently because you need volume? So there well, I mean, are but there's, there's certain there, things. There's no – again, I've done this now for 20 years. There has never been a time where there's been – even though everything's freaking allocated, there's never been – more wine in the market than there is right, right now. This kind of wine. I'm sure there was tons of Napa Cab and lower end oh, yeah. stuff where they had massive yields and stuff before I was into wine or even when I was just getting into wine. But for small producer wine, it's all coming in here at a, at a, at a breakneck pace. And if anything, I can't keep up. I have to make decisions now and be like, man, I really love this winery and it's going to be sold out in three weeks, but I just bought this one. So I guess I'll wait till the next drop. You know, because it's just going to be Does gone. Does that usually work out or like? You know, yeah, it always works out because there's always something else to drink. Yeah. I'm not, I just, I don't, you I don't, don't like. You don't the sweat fact over that, it. The fact that I didn't get 36 <laughs> bottles of some wine from Croatia does not keep me up at night. There's always something else, you know. And like. And there is always something else yeah. and that's the healthy way to look at yeah, it. Yeah. And I you think know, that that's be, the fun part. Yeah. It's, I just, I'm not, I'm not going to have, my feelings aren't going to get hurt. If we don't get offered something or I'm not going to like call somebody, you know, people do it, but I'm not going to call a distributor begging that I've, I've, I've ordered from twice this year because they got a very allocated champagne in and I feel like I deserve it even though I've shown their company zero support. That's just that's not how the, you do business. What about the opposite way? Do 
distributors come to you? And I, I think those days are gone where they have a wine where I need you to take this, or I, I you know, this it would look retail. good for me yeah. to have it on your yeah. list or even for me to go back to my yeah. boss and well, say, you I, know. I, I mean, I've definitely been approached but, by uh, people that do that, but they also know that's not really going to work yeah. because it's just not how, that's not and like, they're not that's carrying not, crappy wine. It's also anyway. not the way like we work together. They know that I'm not the wrong guy for that, but like, but but yeah, I mean, we do, people still do that, but not like when I was at retail. Like, you know, you floor stack all this Sauvignon Blanc, I'll get you Van Winkle. You know what I mean? That's like, I don't, I, that doesn't happen. For two bottles know? of Van Exactly, Van exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's, that's the Four Horsemen. Um, and it's probably one of the great combinations of incredibly thoughtful food and obviously, you know, a thoughtful wine list. Um, all right, so we got to wrap up the show, but Let's I want to do two things. I want you to do the wine list. Okay. Take a few minutes, and I want to taste this wine, and I want you to talk me through it. Sure. Um, but a couple things I wanted to mention. It's funny and actually very nice, and we talked about it off air. I mean, James Murphy's one of your apartments, one of your partners. He's on Saturday Night Live. That's true. This week, so let's give him a plug. And it's very <laughs> cool for him and cool for Saturday Night. We talked about. I, ho- that. I hope that most of the people my age or that are listening to this stay are up awake. That yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, DVR now. That's true. So that's true. Worry about it. All right, so here's the last question before we do those two things. All right, you're now a middle-aged guy. Mm-hmm. Can't get away from it. You no. are a middle-aged guy. You cross the half-century thing. All right, you have to pick one profession, musician or wine guy. Now, your buddy James got to do both, it's not true. necessarily true. you. True. What, what still burns hotter in you? Oh, man, I just think... I would not want to be my age and on the road and on on stage. So you're happy Pretend, where you are. I like where I'm at. I think you can. I think I you're right. Be, I could be 70 years old and still ordering these wines and sitting at dinner and eating and flying around I and th- doing stuff like that. But nobody wants to see me do that. On I stage. think you're right, and I think yeah. James sort of is the exception. He has this cool yeah. shtick where he's no kid. He's yeah. got this. Yeah. He kind of does he's what he wants. Kids. Wait, did I say no kids? Yeah, I didn't you mean did. No kids. Uh, what did I <laughs> But he doesn't have to worry about, um, you know, other things. Right. But he does it the way he wants. Yeah, it's yeah, not like, you know, he's um, – and the um, last thing – I'm not even going to say this because it will get you in trouble. I'll tell you off <laughs> okay. air what the joke yeah. is. All right. So before we leave, we're going to do the wine list and we're going to taste this wine. So sure. let's do the wine list. Okay, everyone gets subjected to the wine list. Five questions. Same five questions to everyone. Done over 200 of these. Cool. We post them. Um, I will post these on our social media. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What are you tasting? What's in your fridge at home? What's interesting you? Could be for work. Could be personal. Sure. I mean, be- uh, for, so I'm really liking, I mean, from a, from a general like perspective, I've yeah. really, in the last two years especially, I've really gotten into the wines that Jeffrey Alpert brings in. A L P E R T B or P P. Um, okay. I really think that his palate and and the wines that he's working with are really exceptional and broad. And for someone like you know, he started bringing Ganavot early, and, and he's also a second career wine person. He was a printer, he ran a very so very he's large an printing importer? business. He's an importer, okay. And, and his portfolio, his, his, his portfolio is stunning. And and he's, he's the Ganavot guy, of, yeah, in a lot of ways edgier than even some of my taste in his older 
and I, I think he's a really interesting guy and his palate's spot on and he's really fun to drink with and um, but he's he's doing a lot of work in Savoie that I like. Okay. And he works Any with producers? Uh, Giacchino I, I like quite a lot. Um, they're younger, um, but great wine. They make a, a white called Monferina that I've glassed here that I really like. I see just stuff stuff from that part of France. I, that's kind of stuff I love having on the list here and yeah. like, like opening on Tuesday night. You know what I mean? Those, yep. are, those are kind of wines I really like. I'm surprised that I haven't heard Jeffrey yeah. come up more. Yeah, so it's nice. Really it's incredible, nice to hear from him. Important. All right, we'll take that as a great answer. This is the goofiest question on the um, list, but we ask you your favorite wine and food pairing, not what you think is good or sure. what. What do you? I, have, I mean, I it have, could be Knishes and Savignon, whatever. No, I have Go ahead. One. It's. It's. I'm sure everybody says Comte and uh, Van Jean, but I'm not going to say that. Well, they yeah. don't. <laughs> but you're not allowed to yeah. say Champagne and oysters, I'm which not, is Comte no, no. and Van Jean. It is Champagne and really dried steak. Is that your choice? Yes. All right. I want to talk about that. Yeah. So. I hope, like me, you're a big champagne fan. Just a great, you know, beverage anytime, anything. So, dry aged, probably if you looked up, you know, the database, probably everyone is a Bordeaux or an Apicat. Sure, sure, sure. Why does that work with? Think about, think about. So dry age, let, let me set up, yeah, yeah, is yeah. funkier. Yeah. It could be a minimum of 25 days. could be 60, 70. Yeah. Dries, the flavors are more yeah. intense. It's it's It yeah. smells and yeah. tastes different. Think about champagne and blue cheese or things Funky. like that. That is, it really has that thing where you have this like almost lactic bacteria and all this stuff. And you have this acidic, bright, and especially slightly oxidative age champagne. I, it is, it is hands down my favorite. Wine I've never, and food I've had steak and champagne, yeah. but I've never done yeah. it where it's yeah. like a session. So yeah. now I got to do it's that. It's awesome. But life is too short to have a crappy steak and bad champagne. Right. So when you do this, good champagne, exactly, good butcher exactly. steak. Exactly. All right. Um, so that's a good one. That I think may be a first time too <laughs> on the show, which I like. All right. I know you have a kid. I know you're getting old. I know you're married. I know you're very busy at work. But if I asked you your favorite wine restaurant and our bar, can you answer that? And I want to set this up. By mentioning people doesn't mean you left anyone out. Okay. By mentioning it's not necessarily your favorite. What yeah. I want to get from you is who doesn't like this place? Who cares sure. about the wine, cares sure. about the food? The vibe is good. Sure. You, you educate your people. So you come in here and you go, wow, that was cool. Who Who's doing stuff like that that you like? I really like uh, – it's actually the two – are French expats in in New York, but uh, there's a but you know there's always these like obviously other places that everybody says that are good, but I really like what Pierre over at Fulgurance is yes, doing. Yes, fairly Park. new, right? Yeah, but really, really smart list, really deep, great, great psalm, and and really personable and, and delicious wines, and not afraid to take risks. I like what Clem Clement is doing over at um, at uh, Fredai. He's right. one of the owners. It's like he's just getting, you know, they're just getting started. They've been on a shoestring. They had to go through COVID. Didn't he bring the guy from Daniel Balut over? Um, no, he's got uh, the Smedley. No, the, the guys he's got over there were at Septim in Paris. Oh, okay. Um, and then they're very good, but they're they're American guys. And then uh, and then I really like what uh, Pierre's doing at Ernesto's. As well, like really, like yeah. started with mostly Spanish stuff, but now doing his thing, and has been in the biz, and was one of my favorite psalms when he was in Paris, where he was at, when he was at Bones in a clown bar. He's really smart. He's got good Those chops. guys are 
they have good chops and they're really they're all three people that are really enjoying being able to buy the wines that they couldn't buy where they where they started so their minds are being blown by like you know Italian wines and American wines and Central European wines and all the stuff that we have in this market in like in spades that they couldn't drink before so they're they're not just like this is what was cool in Paris right. or whatever it's like I love wine again and I really love being on the floor and I'm going to give you real service I think that's one of the great restaurants in New York. I mean, I think it's got all the critical acclaim and the place is incredible. Um, and thank God people just don't talk about it all the time or obsess over it like other restaurants. It's in a crazy neighborhood yeah, way east, sure, down, sure. you know. But that, So those are good ones. Um, all right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? The original question. And probably when I asked you this originally, I was fishing for Hey, you're a wine guy. What's the most expensive rare wine you ever <laughs> drank? I don't give a crap about that. Yeah, yeah. I and, and, and now that everyone's listened to the show, the answer, you know, is even more telling and it'll be interesting. What's that wine that one or two wines important to you, whether it was a gateway, enlightened you, changed the way you thought? You know, what's that I mean, wine? It's a, it's at one point it was a very gettable wine, and now it's not gettable at all, and it's worth a gazillion dollars. But <laughs> it is um, winemaker in Loire named Xavier Caillard. I'll send you the spelling of his name. Okay, he made a he had a winery called Chardin Esmeraldin. The wines were aged, I think, for ten years in the barrel before release. That sounds about right. The wines were under; they were like they had a blip in like being cool, maybe. In, in France like a decade ago, but they were wines people put in your table. I had bought some in Europe and we had them, even had them on the list here. There's some bottles hanging. There's one up here somewhere. Empty I think. bottle. But, yeah. um, but um, they were really important to me, but it was a Shannon and it, it was a very emotional touching wine. It was before it was hard to get. It was special and it was small, but which it, is it, more it, genuine. It affected because... me. It affected me very, very deeply. It was a two thousand white, two thousand Shannon, and it was a really profoundly personal and amazing wine. And then, of course, it turns out he you know, he 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 never really made any money because of his age, the way he aged the wine, and never really there wasn't enough wine to make to survive. I think, and he sold the winery, and and I don't I think retired or whatever at a young age, and went on something. It was kind of like a failure, I think, in a lot of ways. The wine was really incredible, and you know you'll never. I think I saw a bottle for like eighteen hundred bucks on oh Song Picks or something like that, and I was—I think we were buying it. <laughs> so we were buying it for like thirty or forty bucks, you know, uh, back in the day. Like now, because that wine does that make Shannon one of your favorite whites, or you just have to isolate it to that I like, situation? I, mean, I like Shannon Blanc. I like Shannon Blanc a lot, just as much as anybody. But the Shannon Blanc is a really wonderfully complex grape because. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I think it's too acidic. Some winemakers, right. it's unfinished. Some, it's not. It's not like any. You just put one in front of me, and I'm gonna have this moment. Like right. I think it's a great. I think, I think it, it's. I think it's, I think it's a great wine. But every every, every single wine does depends on the grower. I'm just. I'm not gonna. You know. There's yeah. tons of Syrah I probably would find undrinkable, but I love Jean-Michel Stéphane and Darden Ribot and and Versailles and things like that. You know what I mean? All good ones. All right. So that's a good one and. Always, the story is better than the wine. Sometimes, yeah, why? you know, totally. I love that. I'll probably never see. I probably will never see it again. Which is also no, a that's other sad. Thing. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. And it's even more, like you talk about Auvergne and even some of sure. the other, which is just ridiculous and hard to get. Mm -hmm. This is impossible to get. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but but less, but, you know, less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's and as time goes by, yeah, it's less exactly. and less. So that's a little sad. All right, you should be able to handle this question. 
um, because you were a retailer and you are a restaurateur. So I want you to recommend the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. I want you to recommend a red and a white. You can do category, like I bet you agree with me. Muscadet is a pretty good value sure, for the sure, money, yeah. but so you could do that. I would love to hear yeah. specific makers. The setup's always been my kids are in their mid late twenties. They can't show up at parties or gift like twelve dollar wines anymore. Right, sure. But they can't afford forty, fifty. So how do you wow for eighteen, twenty two, fifteen? Tell me what you're thinking, red, white. I remember what I said last time, so I'll do two you different do? ones this time. Yeah. I think you listened to the show. I did not okay. listen to the show because I, I wanted to make sure that like we were in this. I, I, I think right, I've even so done I any interviews. I think that's cool because yeah. I'll go back and compare. Yeah, yeah. What Then what are you thinking? I'm thinking, I mean, it's funny, but I, I really do. I do think if you could get, at this point for white, some if you could get something from the Savoie. Okay. In that price range, like they, I some think they're there. Fresh, like Altesse, Jacquere, something like that from that region. They, the wines are, they really do. They have that alpine mineral water and freshness, and it will. They're not, they're not anonymous. It's not like showing up with Pinot Grigio or something. It, they have a personality, and right. they taste like their place, and it's cool. And it will, it would make somebody be like, well, what's this? Right, they're interesting. Yeah. So Savoir, yeah. Savoir whites, mm-hmm. Altesse, Jacquere, yeah. good for um, reds. I mean, currently. Because funny because everything's so expensive. Is now. red tougher? Red's tougher because you know, like the things that have maintained being low priced are are not like are not um not that in you know, they're they're not that great. But Cotarone is always still like a real value from like a good grower, like Roche Buissière or somebody like that. Like there are there are really there's more there's some weight there. I think when people show up with a red wine, you want it to have a little, especially if they're not wine people, they want it to have a little depth. You don't want to show up with like a super carbonic, yeah. like fun little glue glue if wine. If you're playing to the crowd, you're 100% yeah. but, right. But, if you're with your yeah, buddies, yeah, 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 you do yeah, all yeah, of yeah. that. Yeah. But I mean, I still think the value is there and there's tons of natural growers and people doing doing wine that's really beautiful. And they're like, you know, you get something that's like mostly Syrah and Grenache and it's going to have some depth and you're going to feel like something's your glass and and it, it, it'll be easier to drink than you think. Those are good ones, and I think you're within that range. All right, like I said earlier, we post your answers on our social media. We'll probably start kicking up everything tomorrow. Cool. All right, last segment of the show, weekly wine sip. When I have the opportunity, sure. usually with a winemaker or you know somebody who has wine close to them, I ask them to select a bottle to taste that the more important thing is that it reflects the type of wines at the restaurant sure. and what you like and that it's accessible, yeah. kind of cool and all yeah. that. So tell me what we're drinking. So, so this is a wine called Mega Mix by Julian Guillot. Okay. And Guillot, I want to just spell it yeah. for everybody. It's G-U-I-L-L-O-T, yeah. Julian Guillot. A winemaker in the Macon. Um, he's his family took over the domain like 1954, I think. But the, the, the domain has a history of waking, making wine back about a thousand wow. 1200 years like really really old it was a medieval domain the cl- the clothes around some of the vineyards and stuff are, are really old you know like medieval stone like ancient stone walls um his grandfather started the domain and ne- was really really like i'm not scared but like really didn't want to use any pesticides or poisons he really considered them poisons so there's no there hasn't been no spraying or anything like that in the domain they didn't have to bring it back it was never there and it's it's fairly for the for the for where it is like the winery i've been there it's fairly large you know comparatively but it's not like industrial by any means it's just he has space right and he works in these really really big old barrels 
And this wine is called Mega Mix. I think last year might have been the first year he made it. I think it's the second vintage. It's just equal parts Pinot, Chardonnay, and Gamay, all from his vines. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. That label is like ridiculous, but nothing, everything else he does is very traditional calligraphy. Right, it is kind like, of beautiful, a funky label. But, like, this yeah. is kind of a, but I think this is a great entry-level wine for him. And, and what's the retail about on this? I'm not sure. I, I bet the retail is probably around 30 bucks, okay. 30 something. I think it's like so 20 So it's a 20 killer wine for 30 bucks. Yeah, I think it's a Interesting, delicious, yeah. great blend. And it, and, and it really does. It, it opens a bit reductive, but it really does open right, and integrate. So let's, let's do a quick evaluation. Yeah, cool. On the color... What's that color? How do you describe that? I mean, it's I, for lack of a better word, Trans- wouldn't you kind of call it burgundy? Like, yeah, it's, it's like, like a translucent, yeah, yeah. you know, red, a burgundy-ish. Not a deep one, not a mm-hmm. super light one. Right. All right, nose. Tell me what you get descriptors on the nose. I suck at this. Uh, for me, it's like I get. I mean, again, these are, these are my my things, but I get like like strawberry seeds. Like a little, there's a little sour fruit. There's a little. There's like a little like you smell a little acidity, but there's a tiny bit of reduction. But but the palate of the wine pushes through all that. All right, so yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. The mouthfeel, it's sort of a medium. It's not yeah. thin or light. It's not cloying. It's you know somewhere in medium, medium negative. All right, does the palate reflect the nose? You were you were. No, getting I, I into think that. I think the palate is deeper, and there's whereas like there's like almost like green fruit. A little bit. It doesn't taste underripe, but they're like it reminds me of like there's like like I said like strawberry seeds, raspberry totally. seeds. The palate to me is the opposite. It's like ripe strawberries, ripe cherries, riper, darker, more maroon kind of fruit. Like, and I, I really like that. But then you get some of that crunchy tannin and grip on the back of your tongue. It's funny because one of the not criticisms, but one of the biggest things people talk about to me is like when people describe wine, what the hell are they talking about? And when you know, you know, and you know, and you've had this wine and all that. But it's funny, like, of course, people will pick up strawberry, that red fruit and all that. But there's, I don't know if the word's bitterness, but the seeds Mm -hmm. are somewhat prominent. So when you say strawberry seed, you're right. But, you know, people don't think that. So it's just, it's crazy in that sense. All right. So what wine pairing, what's a, what are typically? I think for something like this, actually, if it, I mean, for me, like we do, you know, for lunch on Friday, Saturday, Sunday here, we do this, we bake our own like really beautiful focaccia. It's kind of thick and airy. And then they do like a, a shaved, like a thinly sliced ham with some chilies and a, an aioli. Perfect I think that, that this would be amazing with so that. So it works with the bread. It works yeah. with the meat. It, it cut works right with through the, the spicing. Fat and like cut through that oil in the what oil. What kind of ham? Imported or American? I'm not positive of what the ham they use is, to be honest. I haven't, I just, I just eat the sandwich. I think I may so, have yeah. to fire you. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So that is, let me just read this out. That is, is there a vintage date on this? Uh, I think this is, I think this is 19. But all right. So let's say yeah, in 19, yeah. the current Claude Devine de Maine's. Uh, Julien Guillaume, red table wine, um, and it's a blend of Gamay, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Camille Riviere. Let's give her a shout out. It's called Mega Mix. Um, definitely a delicious wine. Good price point. You know, I think it's a lot of wine for that price. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's a good one. And thank you for pulling that out. All right, Justin, we got to wrap it up. Let me do a quick wrap up, and let me get some info from you. So, if you have a question, suggestion. Wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. But subscribe because then the show will show up. 
Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at, at BenRuby. Confusing, but you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation to get to that. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Justin's wine list, some great, you know, recos there. And I will post info on our weekly wine sip. Um, so if we wanted to find out more about you, if people say, Hey, that sounds like a cool guy. Can I follow him on social media? And I know that you're not the big, huge social media guy, but it's public. So where can they find you? It's, I guess, Instagram is uh, Jay Cherno. It's C-H-E-A-R-N-O. It's mostly pictures of my kid. And, right. uh, and my wife's artwork. That's how I knew so, you were up yeah. in Beacon yesterday. <laughs> exactly. um, and then if we want more info on the Four Horsemen, just um, I, website, yeah, Google yeah, just it. Four Horsemen BK and then uh, BK. And the Instagram. We put every, every – we're, we're, right. we're getting back into that again. The menu. It felt like it was in bad taste the last two years to post anything. <laughs> so we're getting back, kind of back into it. But um, And, you know, we, there's you can probably sign up for the mailing list on the website. We're, we're trying to re- retool and all that stuff again too. But I remember, um, I don't know if it was pre-COVID, but the menu would come out, you know, all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's always a fun menu. I mean, that's how good the food is. And like you said earlier, all the different influences, whether it's Mediterranean, American, and all that. I mean, the food's tremendous. All right. Thank you to our guest, Justin Cherno. Thanks to our engineers at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.